I'm Mark Peterson, and this is Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. Before we get into this week's episode, we here at FEMA want to thank our listeners for tuning in and learning all about the important mission of FEMA and how we work together to advance the profession of emergency management across all of our partners. This is our 100th episode, and we could not have done it without you and the emergency management communities we aim to serve. We're looking forward to seeing what the next 100 episodes will teach us along the way. So without further ado, here's episode 100. Since 2015, the Resilient Nation Partnership Network has strived to build partnerships to expand capacity and achieve collaborative outcomes. Now more than ever, investing in partnerships is critical to increasing the nation's resiliency. In April of 2022, the network with support from NOAA released the Building Alliances for Equitable Resilience resource. This resource is the result of a significant collaboration by 26 partners across the fields of equity and resilience. Together, we inspire communities to advance equitable and resilient practices. So on today's episode, we're going to highlight some amazing content that is featured in the Building Alliances for Equitable Resilience resource page on our website, FEMA.gov. This audio series is called Partner Voices. The stories were authored from the perspectives of four diverse individuals who are extraordinary leaders who we are honored to call partners. First up, a story of mobilizing equitable resources at the local level, featuring Anna Morandi from the National League of Cities. For many years, it was only the early adopters in local government and often just larger blue cities that were integrating equity into sustainability, climate, and resilience plans. They codified practices within their respective departments, designed toolkits, and presented their innovative ideas at climate conferences. Yet it was still very much a niche topic, and really the majority of staff and elected officials in cities wondered, uh, so what is this whole racial equity thing about? Uh, Does it involve me? Uh, Is it mandatory? Then over the summer, the Black Lives Matter protests transpired, and Really, in nothing short of a momentous shift, we began to hear of elected officials who had attended a racial equity workshop and wanted to share what they learned with colleagues at the city, or communities that were re-examining policing practices, and staff were beginning to make changes to long-standing programs to incorporate racial equity. Many local leaders and officials began to realize how budgetary changes and more inclusive planning processes could quickly impact people's lives. The change in attitude and eagerness to get at the root of cities' complex challenges triggered by the events of 2020 has frankly been remarkable to witness. However, not all communities, elected officials, and staff are on board, and we have a long way to go in providing the training and funding needed for local governments to realize their full potential as leaders in resilience and equity. We also have a long way to go culturally and socially in encouraging individuals to engage in deep inward reflection so that we can all better understand our respective roles in a racist system, not as a personal flaw, but as something we were born into and have the power to change. 
America's cities and suburbs, they were designed with race in mind, and the funding to do so came from state and federal governments. Now, in the age of climate change and with an urgent need for investments and resilience, we must redesign with race in mind. But cities can't do this alone, and in fact, it'll be impossible for smaller cities to plan and protect for the future without collaborating with their neighbors. By their design, metro regions are fragmented by race and class, and it is ultimately at this scale that we can address challenges around infrastructure, ecosystems, social systems, and local economies. Indeed, working across jurisdictions at the metro regional scale is difficult, but it's essential. Funding and technical support from state and federal agencies to support regional collaboration could ensure that smaller communities— particularly those with a lower tax base, are not left behind. Cities, though they're already proving to be pivotal leaders in resilience and equity, they need this critical support to address challenges that are really just beyond their scale and scope. Things like climate-induced migration and buyouts. I hope we continue to generate and foster more of these interscalar partnerships and programs in the years to come. Next up, a reminder of inclusiveness. Nothing About Us Without Us, featuring Jake White from the National Association for Latino Community Asset Builders. Nothing About Us Without Us harkens to a dark history, but also to our present, where policies are imposed on people without engaging those that the policies would impact. Credit to the disability movement, this theme has grown to incorporate multiple types of marginalized communities and subgroups. It is now a refrain that has grown louder as more and more vulnerable communities have battled with rampant increases in costs for dwindling amounts of property, while governing bodies produce sparkling multi-point plans to benefit the people and the land. Being rooted in this phrase is essential to ensuring equitable development. If you represent the us, it is also essential to know what you need to sustain yourself and to thrive once you are asked what you need. As a training planner, I've used many types of indicators that diagnose a neighborhood is struggling. Most of the signs of a struggling neighborhood can be attributed to local disinvestment, but just because a neighborhood does not receive local investment does not mean that the neighborhood has not created a community with inherent worth. The difficulty those communities face is translating that worth into something that can be understood by those in decision-making roles. At the National Association for Latino Community Asset Builders, that is where we focus our energies. We build the capacity of local nonprofit agencies to translate qualitative values into quantitative reasons for stakeholders to support the resilience of marginalized and vulnerable communities. We aim to redirect the flow of capital to serve those communities in a manner that benefits them. In my position, it is not uncommon to engage with an organization that is looking for a way to explain to leaders that although their community floods, its small businesses have value beyond the cost of the building in which they reside. Although a large mixed income development may boost my neighborhood's appeal, my community may lose residents for whom this is the only affordable area where they can get services in their primary language. At the National Association for Latino Community Asset Builders, we see this as a challenge to be addressed from multiple fronts. While our mission is to strengthen the economy by advancing economic mobility in Latino communities, we do this through building assets, as our name states. This has taken the form of building place-based cohorts, allowing them to connect to their communities and project their needs, and then helping them build plans of action that will serve their community. By doing this, our communities can be prepared to use their own analysis and voices to strongly advocate for what is needed in the service of us. Our third story takes us to Nikki Cooley from the Dine Nation and the Institute for Tribal Environmental Professionals. 
Nikki discusses the critically important perspective of remembering and including the voices of Native people. I am of the Towering House clan, born for the Reed People clan. My maternal grandfathers are of the Water That Flows Together clan, and paternal grandfathers are of the Many Goats clan. I am from the Earth and Sky and of the Dene Nation. I am very fortunate to have grown up on Denebekeya, Navajo land, which is mostly within the boundaries set forth by the U.S. government. With the majority of the land base in Arizona, there's also land in New Mexico and Utah. I grew up in Shanto and Blue Gap, Arizona, which are small but vibrant communities. Shanto has a gas station, a K-12 school, and a post office. Families largely dependent on livestock and crops tended to carefully and lovingly in the hot, arid region. When I was not attending school, my main responsibility was to assist my grandparents in caring for their livestock and crops. I often walked after the sheep and goats as they grazed for miles, sometimes 20 miles round trip, from sunrise until sundown. I accompanied my grandfather through the corn stalks, checking for rodents, insects, or weeds. I listened to my relatives as they held ceremonies and prayers late into the night or in the early morning, praying for the well-being of all living things, including the plants and animals. At my parents' home, I would bring three to five gallon buckets of water into the house from water barrels to use for food, washing, and drinking. My father and mother hauled water from windmills. Most are now dried up, as the Navajo Nation never had and still does not have adequate water infrastructure. From a young age, I inherently knew the value of water, fresh air, organic foods, medicinal and subsistence animals and plants. I knew the value of harvesting crops, and drying them for use in the colder, leaner months. No electricity or running water, no problem. I never considered myself poor or unfortunate because I had everything I needed to survive, water, food, and love. Now I know I was one of the fortunate ones. As I entered my 41st year of life, I found myself thinking more about how I grew up. Several weekends spent in Shanto during the summer of 2020 allowed me to experience the most unforgiving heat. From growing up, I remembered the heat of summers and the cold months of winter, but never the parched air and landscape and relentless heat. Now the landscape is responding by not providing the usual lush greenery for our livestock to fatten up on, and watering holes are dried up. This forces us to drive a bit further to fill water tanks. My parents have had to reduce the number of their livestock and condense their cornfields. The corn does not grow as tall, melon and squash plants are reluctant to sprout, and animals such as ravens and rabbits are growing braver and finding ways to bust into the fenced field to feast. The rainy seasons do not fill the water holes, and the winter months do not bring the many feet of snow I often trudge through to get to the bus stop. Life is not only changing, but bringing extreme hardship 
to a landscape and people that are already struggling to get by. In my professional work with tribes and indigenous communities across the country, including Alaska, I am hearing similar stories. Different landscapes and ecosystems, but the impacts on livelihoods, spiritual and physical well-being, and traditions echo loudly. I hear the stories of ceremonies and subsistence activities delayed or postponed due to plants not being ready to harvest or animals that have migrated elsewhere following water and food. Elders tell of the unbalance humans have caused to Mother Earth and Father Sky. In the Western way, we call it climate change. The disruption has certainly caused a delay or halt in the intergenerational sharing and teachings of knowledge and practices. Our work as stewards of the earth and sky has become even more urgent and imperative to the survival of our tribal and indigenous culture and people. The climate crisis that has and will affect us for years to come has become the focus of many tribal and indigenous people as we are often on the forefront of the impacts. Despite being sovereign nations, we are faced with poor or non-existent infrastructures to serve our communities. Despite being sovereign nations, we are often excluded or forgotten when it comes to decision-making processes, funding opportunities and discussions, whether on the national or international stage. Tribal and indigenous people are the first people of this nation survived forced relocations and removals from traditional homelands and are now emerging as leaders in climate change adaptation and mitigation. True long-term partnership and engagement are required and needed. These are a few of the many reasons tribes and indigenous people should always be part of the conversation and not just a check mark to satisfy diversity requirements. Our final highlight from the Partner Voices audio series takes us to Valerie Novak from the Center for American Progress. Valerie explores the importance of remembering our most vulnerable during times of need. I was still in high school when Hurricane Katrina hit. I never expected that years after that tragedy, I would learn that people with disabilities, older adults, and others were still routinely left out of emergency planning conversations. A decade later, I found myself tasked with finding best practices for accessible evacuation plans because despite the lessons we should have learned after Katrina, this was still a problem. Instead of finding examples of successful efforts to reduce the vulnerability of disabled people by creating more inclusive processes, I found lawsuits against some of our biggest cities for discrimination in their emergency response practices. It was bad enough that Katrina had to happen before disability access became a requirement, but it was negligent to have not changed further since then. This realization fueled my trajectory into not just the inclusion of, but direction by people with disabilities in response and resilience. This was solidified further in 2017 with Hurricane Harvey. This time, I was old enough to respond by volunteering on a hotline for affected people with disabilities, where the results of inequity, apathy, and unawareness were overwhelming. Inaccessible shelters, separated families, forgotten residents, and then hunger and homelessness. I've continued to watch this cycle event after event in various communities. I'm fortunate to have spent the last handful of years working alongside dedicated disability advocates and disabled experts in preparing for and responding to disasters within their own communities and helping to share what I've learned with others. 
We cannot continue to only write and talk about building networks, practices, and communities that are prepared for and resilient to disaster events. We must actively engage in the changes necessary to make them so. And we hope that resources such as these are the start to that work. If you enjoyed this audio series, I encourage you to visit fema.gov partnerships. On that website, you'll find a variety of resources, including the Building Alliances for Equitable Resilience resource page.